In Revelation 5, in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and as such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. The last few weeks we have been in heaven, not literally, but in our study of the Bible. John is caught up in chapter 4 and he sees God, the throne, 24 elders, four living creatures. Then in chapter 5, last week we talked about history's greatest real estate deal, the redemption of the earth, buying back the title deed of the earth. And we called last week history's greatest real estate deal, and this week is really history's greatest worship service. And it's the greatest worship service in terms of its size. It will be the biggest thing ever. You think that you're in a big church now, just wait till you get to heaven. And its location will be awesome. It will be your future home, heaven. Not only will you see God, not only will there be the creatures and the angels, but millions upon millions of those redeemed ones singing a song unto the Lamb. There was a uh, mother trying to comfort her young daughter. The family pet just died. It was a little kitten. The girl was young, didn't quite understand it, and was filled with grief and remorse. And so mom tried to explain the inevitability of death and in terms that the child could understand that God is simply calling all of his creatures back to himself. And uh, the little girl said, But mom, what in the world would God want a dead cat for? <laughs> well, when it comes to human beings, when you die or are caught up into heaven, you will be very much alive, and it will be your future home, and you will be very active in worshiping the Lord forever and ever and ever. Now, the truth is we can worship God any place, any time. It doesn't have to be in a church building. It doesn't have to be in a worship service that is formal. You can do it under a tree. You can do it out in the dirt. You can do it at home. You can do it in your bedroom at night before you go to bed. You can worship any place, any time. As Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria, God is spirit, and he's not confined to Jerusalem or this mountain. But God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. But worship will have its ultimate climactic fulfillment when you and I are in heaven. And no longer will, they be, will there be long-distance worship. You'll see God face to face. You'll be there with the Lamb in person, singing and giving glory to God.
Let me explain before we jump right into the exposition of these verses my personal journey through chapter 5. I first looked at chapter 5 and I said, no problem, I can cover this in a week and we can go on to the next chapter and get into the tribulation, not that we would want to. But the more I studied it, I saw that though the theme of chapter 5 is the Lamb, there's a couple of sub-themes. The first part of chapter 5 is the scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb takes it. He's worthy. The second part of chapter 5 deals with worship. So I said, great, I'll do, you know, one week uh, the scroll issue, which we did last week, and then the following week I'll do worship. But then the more I studied it, I thought there's so much here and it would afford us two full weeks of looking at true worship, the nature of true worship, not only in heaven, but I think reflections of that here on earth. So what we're going to do today is look at verses 8 through 10, and the next time we're together, 11 through the end of the chapter, as we look at true worship. Um, question, how important is worship to you? And as you think of that question, we should immediately ask, how important is worship to God? And that's easy to answer. There's a biblical answer for the second question. Worship is a priority with God. Sometimes we think, well, the focus of the church, first of all, ought to be evangelism, outreach. And that's really not God's priority. It certainly is important. It was a commission Jesus gave us, but it is not topping the list. After all, Isaiah, we remember, became an evangelist after he was inspired at a worship service in Isaiah chapter 6. Others will say, no, the primary important thing the church ought to be involved in is discipleship, teaching, training. And though that is important, that is not of primary importance to God. What tops the list is upreach, our relationship of love, worship, prayer to Him. Everything, outreach, inreach to the body of Christ, comes, stems from relationship to the Lord in upreach or in worship. Of course, Martha learned that, didn't she? She thought, I'm going to be busy about doing his work. And Jesus sort of reproved her and said, Martha, you're busy about so many things. You're distracted by serving. Mary has chosen the better part. And Mary was the one who sat at the feet of Jesus. George MacDonald once wrote, In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. All of our work, all of our evangelism, all of our Bible studies and training must stem from our worship of God. There are three songs, beginning in verse 8, that move through this chapter. Three great movements of songs we're going to cover, as I said, the first one this week, the second two songs next week. Three eruptions of praise, as John sees them. First of all, notice in verse 8, the persons involved in worship, at least this first stage. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who are these 24 elders and four living creatures? We already looked at them a couple weeks back, but to refresh our memories, the 24 elders... I believe, are representatives of the church. 
even as there were 24 courses of priests in the Old Testament, and those 24 courses of priests represented the entire nation of Israel before God and the temple in Jerusalem, these 24 elders, an elder is a church leader representative, represent the entire church before God in heaven. The four living creatures, as we already saw in chapter 4, well, they are literal creatures, I believe. Somebody came up to me and said, I, I think that they're just attributes of God. That's what my Bible note says at the bottom. It says, these are probably attributes of God. Well, it's strange these attributes of God say things and do things in heaven. They're involved in worship. The Greek word for living creatures is zoa, where we get the word zoology. And it simply means a living being. It seems that these are angels of God's presence who are hovering around God in his presence in heaven and are involved in inspiring worship as well as executing judgment, as we'll see later on in this book. But I draw your attention to the word, the words, the first two words of verse 8. Now when. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. You see, worship here comes in response to a completed action by the Lamb. The Lamb does something as soon as he takes that scroll, that authority to rule. That is the cue. And a response is given, a response of worship. And we also notice that there's a beautiful order to this worship service in heaven. Like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in order. It's not as if John and the angel and the living creature just sort of have a free-for-all. Well, I feel led to do this. Well, I feel led to say this. There's a definite order to the worship. The lamb takes the scroll. Twenty-four elders, four living creatures bow down. They say certain things. That is the cue for all of the angelic hosts in the next few verses to speak antiphonally the praises of God, which in turn inspires all of God's creation in the last few verses to have their turn of praise and worship before God. Now that leads us to the first essential truth about worship. True worship is a response to God. It is, should be at least, the natural response of any redeemed person. That we would naturally respond by worshiping God. It shouldn't be difficult our response to God for who he is and what he has done should not be complaining about our lot in life that God has given us. God, why would you? That's not the proper response. The proper response for God's action should always be worship. Now, because worship is a response, true worship never has to be worked up. You don't have to pump people up when they're truly God's people, to worship. You don't have to get them in the mood to worship because worship is essentially a response. It is not a feeling. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to take all the emotion out of it. It involves feeling. It involves emotion. And sometimes worship is very emotional as our hearts are burdened and we pour them out before God or filled with joy. And sometimes people weep great tears of joy as well as sorrow in a worship service. But it is not a feeling primarily. 
We don't get up, at least all of us don't, every Sunday morning and think, it's Sunday, I get to go to church and worship. Now, it'd be great. I'd like to say we all should do that, and perhaps we should, but we don't always. We look forward to being with God's people, but there are times when we think, you know what, I don't really feel like it today. I don't feel like being around people today. I've had a bad week. I don't really have anything I want to be thankful for. And if we always waited for a feeling, we may never worship or seldom worship. It is a response. It is a choice to respond. It is not an emotional goosebump. Nor is worship a time filler. I want to sort of mark that, that we don't worship at the beginning of our service as a, just a fill-in time. Well, we got an hour. Might as well sing and make, you know, room for people coming late and parking, and that's really what worship is about. Now, worship is about responding to all that God is and what He has done. In other words, it is your turn. God has worked in your life. God has been faithful to you all week, every moment of every day. It is now your turn to respond, to give Him worth and glory and praise. Because love always demands action. Love is demonstrated. It can never be passive. And if we love someone, we will share that love and respond. You might say that God is not too excited about secret admirers. Private. Oh, I love God, but it's a private thing. It better not be with Him. You better tell Him that you love Him and respond to who He is and what He has done. Well, those are the persons involved. The 24 elders and the four living creatures respond as the Lamb takes the scroll. Now let's look at the position that they assume in the worship. Again in verse 8, it says, These living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Being so awestruck, being so grateful, now the earth can be fully redeemed and bought back to God by the Lamb. In perhaps the greatest demonstration, at least in ancient times, to show veneration, they bowed down before the Lamb of God. It is a term or a sign of respect. I was looking up worship, found out that in the Old Testament, it is mentioned 97 different times. 97 different occasions. And of all the words that are used for worship, the Hebrew word shacha is the most frequently used. And it means literally to bow down, to lie prostrate before, to bend, to stoop, to do obeisance to. The idea is humility. I'm in God's presence and I am grateful and I humble myself before him. There are many scriptures that bear this out. One of them, Psalm 95, one of my favorites. It's, it's an invitation. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Then Paul predicts when all of creation will do this. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Now this leads us to another essential truth about worship. Worship involves humility. Think about it. The very act of worship is the absence of self-absorption, of self-centeredness. When we worship, we are not preoccupied with ourselves. Our focus is not on us. We're preoccupied with God. Our focus is upon 
God. It's like an engaged couple when they're in each other's presence. They're wrapped up in the other person. They're goo-goo-eyed over that other person. They're thinking about ways to please that other person, things to say to encourage. It's the natural response. This, I believe, is the very reason why many people do not get involved in worship. Because for some people, it is so foreign to take the focus off themselves. It is more comfortable to be self-absorbed and to not lose sight of myself. And so many people simply do not worship because they don't want to shift the focus. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, at least he was a long time ago in the 1940s, wrote, Worship is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable of, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. In other words, the cure to being self-centered is to put all of our focus upon him, and that is the most selfless emotion. Let me also be quick to say that every single person I have ever met worships something. I've never met a true atheist. I meet many people who say they are, but I contend that every person has a God and worships that God. It could be a job. And some people spend long hours at the altar of their occupation, hour after hour trying to get a higher position a more lucrative position in the company. They worship their work. Other people worship pleasure, and they go from one pleasure experience to another, one high to another, one drug to another, one bed to another. They worship that. And you know what? It's pretty easy to find a person's God. Just find what that person is involved with most of the time. Uh, Jesus said where a man's treasure is, there is his heart also. What is the master passion, the thing that drives a person? That is that person's God. Now, it is easy to claim that we worship God, but give him leftovers. God, I love you. You're the ultimate. But I am too busy for you right now, okay? Surely you're God, so you understand. You've heard about the farmer that had two cows that were born to him, and he said, I'm going to donate one to the Lord. One I dedicate to God, and one I'll keep. But as a sign of God's blessing and in gratitude, I dedicate this cow to God. The only problem is he never made a distinction as to which one. Until one night when one of the cows was sick and he ran into the barn and spent long hours trying to nurture it back to health. Finally, he came into the kitchen sweating and he said, Honey, I have bad news. The Lord's cow just died. <laughs> Leftovers. You can only worship God when your life is fully given over to Him, and really that is the essence of humility. And if your life is given over to God and you are preoccupied and consumed with Him, it is impossible to just hang out in a worship service. It's impossible. I think much of Christianity is weak in worship because much of Christianity is weak in relationship with God. And, and worship is not just a once-a-week thing. It's something we do throughout our week. And what we do Sunday is simply an overflow corporately of what we do anyway all the time. It's the natural response of the child of God. Now let's look at the possessions that these people, these creatures, employ in their worship. 
It says, they fell down before the Lamb, verse 8, each having a harp. Now, this is probably where we get the idea of being in heaven, sitting on a cloud, and playing a harp. But let's look at it a little more closely than that. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They had a harp, or better put, a lyre, L-Y-R-E, a lyre, depending on what part of the country you're from. This is an ancient instrument that was a uh, rectangle or a trapezoidal shape with strings that were plucked as music was sung with a voice or words were simply spoken like poetry. And so you would accompany the psalm with plucking of the strings or strumming of the strings like a guitar. What's interesting is we are in the New Testament, we are in heaven, and there is a musical instrument in heaven. And with all deference to our friends in the Church of Christ, I think it's an important point to see that there's music employed in the anthems of praise in heaven. Even as music has always been important when it comes to God's people gathering. In the Old Testament, we read that music was employed on several occasions uh, when the Red Sea opened up and swallowed all of the Egyptian uh, oppressors and Israel came out on the other side. They didn't just, you know, say a little, mumble a little prayer and go on. They danced and they used timbrels, these tambourines, and danced and sang before the Lord. In the temple, there were worshiping groups of people as well as instrumentation going on. In battle times, there was also praise and worship. Let me give you a few of these scriptures. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 15, David brings the ark back to Jerusalem the right way the second time. And it says, David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, symbols, by raising the voice with resounding joy. Then uh, when David established the system of worship over in 1 Chronicles 25, moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph, of Haman, and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of the skilled men performing their service was 288. You think our band is big? 288 paid musicians to lead Israel in worship. That must have been awesome to listen to. Then in 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat goes out to battle, it says, When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they had began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. That's an interesting battle strategy. Okay, infantrymen first. No, no, wait a minute. Get the musicians first. You think, oh, what, to kill us off first? No. It was to praise the Lord. And so they would go out before the army, and they'd say, praise the Lord, his mercy. And I'm sure they're going, Lord, I'm trusting right now in your mercy. It endures forever. And when they praise, God set ambushes. It was important even in battle times. Music has always been a powerful force in every society. 
Every society has folk songs. Every society has national anthems that we sing. Music has always played an important part. It's important in our culture. If you want to sell anything, you set a little jingle that will catch the ear. You want to sell a Chevy, a Coke, electricity. Millions of dollars are spent to employ the right kind of music to make an impact on people as they hear it. I heard a story of a missionary in Nigeria who was building a mission station, and he got local carpenters. All of the materials were sent to the spot. Everybody got up that day early to build this mission station. But they waited around. No action was being taken. Nobody was working. Finally, the missionary said to the foreman, Look, the material's here. Everybody's here. Why don't you get to work? He said, Man, we'd like to, but the musician's late. I don't know where he is. The musician's late? What does that have to do with building a mission station? And he found out that in that culture, they work to the beating of the drum, the chanting of music. That's very important. And some of you might say, Why is that important? Yet some of you will have your radio on or a tape on when you're working. And you'll be working, you'll be tapping your foot or jiving or moving to the movement of the music. It has a powerful influence in our culture. Psychologists, I found this article, tell us that music influences us whether we like it or not. In one study of its powerful effect upon people's feelings, a number of individuals were exposed to a series of brief classical excerpts that moved from one specific mood to another mood, from depressed to happy, from agitated to serene, from bored to active, from lighthearted to majestic. In every case, the emotional response of the subject paralleled the spirit of the music. King Saul understood that. When he was sullen and down, he said, Get David. I want to hear his music. It will lift me up to a new level. God's spirit moves through the minstrels of music. We were simply made that way. I think you have to be practically dead to not be moved when the anthems of worship are lifted up. When music is cranked and God's people start singing, to not be moved by that. Something's got to be wrong. We were meant to be moved by it. Now, what kind of music it is in heaven, we're not told the beat, how the measures are set out. What kind of worship was played in the early church? What kind of music in ancient Israel? We're not really told. We don't know if it was slow, fast, whatever. But just thinking of the musical instruments of ancient Israel and the early church being part of the economy of Israel, coming out of ancient Israel, going to the temple, we can kind of infer what kind of music they were used to. Listen to Psalm 150. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute, the harp. Praise him with the timbrel, the dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. It's obvious that the music was loud and rhythmic, at least in certain portions, in ancient Israel and no doubt in the early church since they picked that up. Now, I am coming to a controversial point. And... It's controversial. It's just like the devil to get us sidetracked and argue about things that are really unimportant, but it has been a source of controversy and actually probably for generations. And that is, what style of music does God enjoy? 
Let me be quick to say God enjoys whatever comes from your heart if it's true and honest and you worship him with it. I don't think God says, that's not a 4-4 beat. I can't listen to that. But some people say, well, you can't worship God with electric guitars or drums, much less these electric drums. Because the beat, the devil's in the beat. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it for years. And that beat moves people to do weird things. And what is the complaint, essentially? The complaint is music moves people. You know what? Music was meant to move people to tears, to laughter, all sorts of moods and emotions. It has an effect. Music is like a knife. Now, would it be a little bit unilateral, monolithic, and unfair for me to say, knives are evil, we should outlaw all of them? Look at all the damage that's been done by knives throughout history. People have been murdered by knives. You would be quick to respond, yes, but think of all the good they have done. Think of all the mothers that cut vegetables and meat for their family. Think of all the heroes that have cut ropes of bondage from those in slavery with a knife. It depends solely on who's using it. Not the shape of it, not the length of it, but who is controlling the force of the knife. And so it is with music. Who is controlling it? Who is using it? Next, they have also in their possession golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is an image we should think of. When the high priest in the Old Testament would walk into the temple in Jerusalem, he often had a bowl filled with incense that represented the prayers of his people. Outside of the temple, in the outer courtyard, the people of Israel were praying as the incense was being offered to God. David said in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Here's a bowl representing the prayers of God's people, all of the intercessions, all of the pleadings, all of the confessions, all of the burdens being poured out as God hears once again the prayers of his people. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. And one day, and here we see it, these prayers are about to be answered. Your prayer is sweet-smelling to God. You don't bug God, all right? God didn't say, oh, you again. <laughs> Would you pipe down, please? I'd like to listen to Billy Graham or somebody important. Even when you plead before God and you offer up a prayer, it's sweet incense to God. He loves to hear your prayers. Yesterday uh, was sort of a dad-son play day. Nathan had baseball early in the morning, so we went to baseball game. Then afterward, he wanted a skateboard, and he has a skateboard, and I just bought a new skateboard, so I thought, let's go do a couple ditches. After skateboarding, he wanted a bicycle, so we got him bicycles and rode them. Then he wanted a rollerblade, and I had to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> I thought, no, you rollerblade, I'll ride next to you. And then toward the end of the afternoon, he said, Dad, I'm sorry, you've had to sacrifice your whole day to be with me. I said, you don't understand, it's been a delight to be with you. It's no sacrifice. It's sheer joy. And do you think that when you pray to God and pour out your heart, because worship involves praying, that God says, you know, I, I'm just bugged by your prayers. It is sweet incense to God, folks. God loves hearing from his children. 
Even when you pour out a pleading, oh Lord, I need this. It is an act of worship because you are voicing your dependence upon God. You're expressing your trust and your faith by even bringing it to God in prayer. Next, let's look at verses 9 through 10, the praise song that is ascribed in worship. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. First thing I want you to notice about this praise is that it was a song. They sang, it says. They sang. And it brings up another important truth about worship. I know it's going to sound very elementary, but bear with me. Worship involves singing. Involves singing. He's saying, well, I'm not, I don't have a good voice. And you know, that's okay. Some of you don't have good voices. It's not a put down, it's a fact. But aren't you glad that the Bible says make a joyful noise? Rather than sing a perfect song. It doesn't say that. Now, anybody can make a joyful noise. And I would ask that you'd make a joyful noise definitely unto the Lord. Let it be heard. Next, notice that it was not just a song, but it was a new song. And they sang a new song. I was looking up in uh, the scriptures that... There's a frequently used concept in worship, especially in the book of Psalms, about this new song. Nine different times it mentions a new song. Most of the time it's a commandment. Sing a new song to the Lord. Not the same old stuff, a new song. And look at the book of Psalms, which is the ancient songbook of Israel. 150 of them. Probably many of them were broken down like Psalm 119 and others. Sing a new song. Some people refuse to do this in uh, the church, even in the evangelical churches. They'll say, I don't like those choruses. I only like the hymns. Now, I've got to jump on this quickly and say, I love the hymns too. In fact, we've made it a practice that at least every Sunday morning, we will incorporate in our worship, which is more contemporary than most, at least one hymn so that we can stay tied into the roots of sacred music. Because some of those hymns have such depth in their words and their theology that I've just not seen duplicated. There's a depth and expression. And I love them. They're beautiful. However, what essentially you are looking at when you look at a hymn or sing it is what God was doing 100, 200, 300, 400, 800 years ago. And if that's all we sing, we are essentially saying, God moved 800 years ago, but he's not moving now. We really have nothing new, no new expressions of worship. And so we're called to sing a new song. You know, those hymns were edgy then. They were contemporary Christian music whenever they were written. It was fresh out of the stove, so to speak. It was new stuff then. And every new generation needs a fresh expression of love to God, whatever suits that generation. 
Now, many throughout history have sensed this, and I'm probably going to step on a few toes. Not that I've minded doing that, but it has to have a good reason. But throughout history, there has been this eruption of, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need something new and fresh in worship. Let me begin with Martin Luther, head of the Reformation. He said in 1524 these words. Now, this is Martin Luther. Listen up. How has it happened that in the secular field there are so many fine poems and so many beautiful songs, while in the religious field we have such rotten, lifeless stuff? That's Martin Luther. He said, we must read, sing, preach, write, and compose verse. And whenever it was helpful and beneficial, I would let all the bells peal and all the organs thunder and everything sound that could sound. Yeah! Go, Martin! <laughs> what Martin Luther decided to do is take popular drinking melodies, songs that were found in the bars in the 1500s, Take the music and put Christian words to them. Songs like, Away in a Manger. Songs like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know, when people first heard that, they went, <gasps> Now they're classics. Another time era, 1690. A young guy went up to his dad and said, Dad, I love God and I love church, but the music is kind of outdated and boring. And his dad just flew off the handle. How dare you? You write some songs then. And he said, okay, I will. His name was Isaac Watts. 360, 350 some odd songs he gave the church. Songs like, when I survey the wondrous cross, joy to the world, that upbeat song of praise. Then there was William Booth, who started the Salvation Army. And he wanted to update the music. He thought, look, I'm reaching out to people on the streets of this country. I don't want to use an organ. I want to use tambourines. When he started coming out with his new brand of music, guess what people called it? Devil music. Then there's D.L. Moody and his revivals in Chicago, the Eastern Seaboard, and also Europe. He used a song leader by the name of Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey took, again, contemporary songs, like the waltz, that was contemporary then, and he took these familiar songs and put Christian lyrics to them. So much so that when he would do his crusades, and he did one over in Glasgow, Scotland in 1874, the songs were sharply criticized. They called it steam kettle music. That was a chop back then. Scott, the Scottish believers up to that point only would use the psalms, no hymns, just psalms of David in their worship or variations of them. So this was not only a song they sang, it was a new song unto the Lord. Notice it was a song for what he had done. You are worthy, verse 9, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. If you want to be assured of having an anointed worship song, then you fill its stanzas with Christ. You make sure the sacrifice at the cross is paramount in that song and I don't know for the life of me why many churches are trying to pull out songs about the blood of Jesus or the cross. Well, that's too offensive. You kill life in worship when you pull out the sacrifice of the cross. It is to be paramount in worship. Notice also that this is a song that only the church could sing. Only the church can sing this song. You have redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
everywhere on earth, you've done a work of redemption. And here's God's people in heaven singing the anthems of praise. You know, one of the greatest things of heaven is going to be who's there. God's going to be there. The Lamb's going to be there. Angels are going to be there. But people from all over the world in past history and present day worshiping the Lord. That'll be cool. Somebody once said there's going to be three wonders in heaven. First wonder, who's there? Secondly, who's not there? And third, that we're there. (laughs) And I think that fact alone will cause us to just unfold an anthem of praise that we're there in God's presence. Now this brings up another question as they're gathered around the throne. All of these people, will we recognize each other in heaven? I've been asked that question a lot. I like the way Charles Spurgeon answered it. He said, well... Do you think we'll be more stupid in heaven than we are on earth? If we recognize each other on earth, surely we would recognize each other in heaven. After all, the three disciples that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, had an instant recognition that it was Moses and Elijah that appeared with Jesus. They'd been dead 900 years, but they saw, that's Moses, that's Elijah. There was that instant recognition. Somebody's asking me, well, how will we look in heaven? All I can say is better than we do now. Glorified bodies in a completely redeemed state, raised and corruptible. And we'll close on this last note in verse 10. We notice that it was a song not only for what Jesus had done at the cross, but what he would do presently and in the future. Verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. One of the things worship ought to do for us now is catapult us into the future to remind us of the future state. And I think one of the greatest deliverances of depression is when we sing to the one who rules our life and we sing to the one with whom we shall reign over the earth for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. You've made us kings and priests and we will reign on the earth. Get used to worship. Get used to singing. You will be doing it for eternity. I found an article in the Detroit Free Press. At least it was first published in it. It was called, a very short one, The Remedy for a Prune Face. (laughs) About wrinkles. The article said in part, quote, Ladies, do you want to stay young? Oh, yours perk up. Then join a church choir, says the article. Women who sing stay younger looking because a singer's cheek muscles are so well developed by exercise that her face will not wrinkle as soon as the non-singer. Now, I'm not sharing that as an antidote for aging. Worship, you know, you'll look younger. That's not my idea. That's this article. But simply to say God made us to worship him and to respond to him and to sing to him. And it is tremendous. The Bible tells us that a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. So you sing. Even if you can't, you make a joyful noise. Let's all stand. Father, we stand in your presence. One day we will be bowed before your throne, casting our crowns before you. And there will be a great, great anthem of praise that goes up. But we want to begin now, not only in a song service, but also 
Every day of the week, the natural response to being owned by God is worship. We lift now this song to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's go for it.